Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. Tonight, we're in uh, part six of Defending the Faith. As we always talk about, we've all been given the same instructions by Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark to preach and teach. It's called the Great Commission, and that's what we're about. That's what we're trying to learn how to do is preach and teach better because we have to use words. And uh, in order to get the message across, of course, we use our lifestyle, but we always want to be aware of that. Um, in, in 1 Peter 3.15, we are commanded always be ready to give a defense or an answer for the hope that's inside of you. And then in Jude 3, we're exhorted to contend earnestly for the faith. In other words, fight with all the strength to win because I'll tell you, we got a battle on our hands out there in, in many places. So a recap from uh, the last study two weeks ago, we studied about the kenosis, kenosis of Jesus Christ with Philippians 2, 5 through 11, uh, the humbled and exhausted Christ as our focus pa passage. We learned about kenosis, the Greek word interpreted as self-emptying, Jesus Christ. The second person of the triune Godhead became flesh, what we call the incarnation, emptied himself, became of no reputation, humbled in the likeness of flesh, limited, veiled, or suppressed his glory and other divine attributes in order to accomplish the perfect plan of redemption for mankind. It says in verse 8 of our focus passage that Jesus humbled himself to the lowest of humiliation, to the point of death, even the death of the cross, that's why in verse 9 it also says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, Jesus Christ. This was, the this was the mind of Christ that Paul was showing to the Philippian church and all of us that God loves us so much that he humbled himself in Christ all the way to the cross in order to redeem us back to himself. And a couple of passages here that kind of give us this idea of that humility and what he was talking about, let this be of the mind of Christ in you. John 15, 13, y'all are familiar with this, but greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Okay, our subject for tonight, the incarnation and the virgin birth. I thought about that. Should the virgin birth be before the incarnation or vice versa? But it doesn't make any difference. All it goes right hand in hand, right? The AOL statement of belief that we have, we believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, is eternal in existence and is the Word of God become flesh, as is stated in the Gospel of John chapter 1, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So it goes without saying that the incarnation and the virgin birth of Jesus go hand in hand. Would you agree? You can't believe one without believing the other. I say that you can't believe. I'll, I'll give you some evidence that there are people that believe in that don't believe in that. But we're going to try to cover both in sufficient de detail enough for support from the Word of God to enhance better understanding for all of us. Both of these doctrines are very important and are at the very core of the salvation message. And I'll tell you, there's going to be a lot of overlap on Scripture and, and implication and meaning. So it may, you, as we're studying both of these, as we're studying the incarnation, as we're studying the virgin birth, because these... Like I said, they go hand in hand, so you need both of them to support each other. So it may look like we're going around in circles at times, but don't get concerned because you know if you go around in a circle enough, you'll always come back to the same place you were before, right? You'll end up in the same place, but that's all right. We'll, we'll get there. So we're going to talk about the virgin birth tonight. I, wanted, I, I had 
I started out and I was going to do the incarnation and I said, no, I need to do the virgin birth because it leads up to the incarnation or it, it starts with the virgin birth and, and ends that way. So that's the way we're going to, that's the direction we're going to go tonight. In the New Testament, we have two accounts in the Gospels of the virgin birth. First one is in Matthew uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 23. Now, mark these because I, I know we're going to go through these pretty quick. And so when you get back to your Bible where you can, where you can slow down, it's not on the screen, uh, you can refer back to it because you need to you may need to uh, go back and look at these again because I just would you know this is good time to get in some deeper study but anyway it starts with verse verse 18 says now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows after his mother Mary was betrothed to jo Joseph before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Spirit then Joseph her husband being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, the second passage is in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and it's a scripture probably most everybody, if you all have a tradition in your house, this is probably part of the scripture that you'll read during the Christmas uh, uh, Eve, if you have a Christmas Eve time or or a time to read the scripture, but this is the, the story, the biblical account of the birth that's mostly read by everyone. Now it starts in verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by, by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. So we, we also have two, to support this, we have two Old Testament prophecies of the virgin birth. The first one, you may not think of that as that, but we'll, we'll be into it a little bit more detail later. But... Uh, in Genesis 3.15, in the New King James Version, this is the way it reads, and I will put, this, this is a story after, after uh, this, this is when Jesus, I mean not Jesus, but this is when God is talking to the uh, devil after the temptation and the fall, and he's cursing the devil right now at this point, but he's, he's talking to the devil, and he's saying, I, and I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, talking about Eve, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't know if it's, uh, yes, in the, in the version that's on the screen there, you see where the, her, her seed, the seed part of it is capitalized. It's always an indication of, of deity when we're capitalizing, and in in, in a lot of translations don't do that. But, the, the, but this is considered, this, this scripture, Genesis 3.15, is considered the first proclamation of the gospel message in the Bible. And so, uh, and so it's, it, it's implied, the virgin birth is implied when it says her seed because normally it's, it's the seed of the man that we're always talking about. But in this case, this is the only place you'll see it where it says her seed. 
so that's that comes to be important to be pointing uh, to the future uh, virgin birth of Jesus. Now, and then the next scripture is Isaiah seven fourteen, in the New King James Version, where it says, "Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign: Behold, the virgin shall the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall you shall and shall call his name Emmanuel." So, and Emmanuel in, in Hebrew means uh, God with us, or God come to live with us. The key points from our belief statement above that we need to focus on tonight is the Word of God become flesh. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's where we're going tonight. That's what we're going to study. So in our doctrine, we believe the accounts in Matthew and Luke that Jesus was born of a virgin. We believe those things that is written. That this miraculous conception was an act of the Holy Spirit and that no human father was involved. We'll see that repeated over and over again because that's why we've we got to get that down in our spirit, believe that, to know that and see what's going on here. So once again, I want to just read the, that portion of the scripture passages we read in Matthew 1, 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then the passage in Luke again, 1, 26 and uh, 27. Uh, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. So all of the, I want you to know, all of the, all of the, uh, the core essential beliefs that we have, I hope we brought that particular number down, uh, that we, we have touched on so far in this Defending the Faith study have been challenged by the unbelieving and faithless world, the deity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, and the virgin birth. Probably the virgin birth is probably the most challenged of all the things that we consider our core beliefs. The virgin birth has been challenged even by some in the professing church itself, mostly since the 19th century, not so much prior to that, calling it a myth, trying to rationalize it out of Scripture by saying the Bible is really saying young woman uh, instead of virgin, and, and even going so far as to saying that it's not even essential to the salvation process to believe in the virgin birth. Now let me give you, a, I want to just give you some examples of that. I, I didn't put them in here, but I want to just read some of these from a, a little a side study that I did according to this because I wanted to see what uh, other things were being said about that. You know, when you when you say that it's being challenged by some even in the professing church itself, uh, let me give you some, these are some things, statements that were made by people that are uh, made about the virgin birth, and, and, and that's why I'm saying it's been attacked, and probably more so than anything. This is one of the things that it said, it's, it, it, the day will come, this is a quote, the day will come when the mystical generation or conception of Jesus by the supreme, supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. So they're discounting the virgin birth. They're saying it's nothing but a fable. <clears throat> Another in the early 20th century by uh, um, a person that's uh, another notable person of course, I do not believe in the virgin birth. I do not know any intelligent minister who does. And then this other feller uh, here wrote a book, and he uh, in quest of Jesus, and he's a, a professor, and he's uh, he calls the virgin birth theological fiction. And then here's another one. Although the virgin birth cannot be understood as a historical biological event, it can be regarded as a meaningful symbol, at least for the time. 
And another quote, the virgin birth of Jesus is an insult to modern intelligence and should be abandoned. In addition, it's a pernicious doctrine that denigrates women. And so here's, here's the last one of that uh, uh, group. In time, the virgin birth account will join Adam and Eve as clearly recognized mythological elements in our faith tradition, whose purpose was not to describe a literal event, but to capture the transcendent dimension of God in the earthbound words and concepts of the first century human beings. In other words, he's saying it's just a myth dreamed up by primitive and ignorant people. Now, the amazing, amazing thing about this, now we read these things, and you know, we, I, I, I sense and I believe every one of us in here, we, we would fight to the tooth and nail, you know, to, for the saying we believe in the virgin birth. The amazing thing about these examples is, and let me just read you another one. This is one of our founding fathers, uh, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. The day will come when the mystical, I read that one, but it, it, that first one I read about the mystical generation of Jesus by the Supreme Being as his father in a womb of a virgin, we've classed as a fable. He was one of our founding fathers, but he was a deist, and he didn't believe in the supernatural. But anyway, the... Th the amazing thing, he did proclaim to be a Christian, but that's beside the point right there here at this point. Not beside the point, but it adds to the point. The amazing thing about all these examples is the fact that every one of the persons I have quoted was a professing Christian when they said it. Some of these were people from seminaries, men and women that had written books um, and, and different things uh, about that, that instructed other ministers at, at seminaries and things. So it's, you know, when I say that it's been challenged it's probably been mocked, reviled, challenged by uh, uh, more uh, more than any other part of the doctrine that we do. Uh, it's it's probably that it's taken on more uh, about that than any of the other uh, things, uh, and we'll get more into that uh, here in a little bit. I just wanted to read those examples because saying that it's not a doctrine that everyone just takes for granted that we believe in and that we can walk up and say, you know, that's the reason it's important for us to study these things and get and have a firm foundation and a good understanding of why we believe the things we believe with a biblical and scriptural support is because when somebody comes, confronts us and say, that's just a fable, that's just a myth, that didn't happen. Oh, no, I got proof. I can, shape, I can walk you through the scriptures and show you those kind of things, and that's where we need to be. You know, it may take some time, and I'm not saying you're going to have these memorized and be able to point it, but you're going to have to be able to give a defense, give an answer to those things, why we believe those things. Uh, so what do you think? Is this something that you would consider, as far as the virgin birth goes, is this something that you would consider as an essential belief to our faith? Do you think that the opposing view denying the virgin birth of Jesus has any effect on how and what you believe about the divinity of Jesus? What do you think? Well, I'll give you the answer. I'm going to just make it easy. I'll give you the answer. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does have an effect because the opposing view detracts from the deity of Jesus. It calls into question the sinlessness of Jesus and denies the role of the Holy Spirit in the virgin birth. In this study, we'll be the, we will be the fact-checkers of those particular conspiracy theories of the devil. I had to throw that in because we get fact-checked every time you turn around. So we're going to fact-check these people, right, in the Word of God. So why is the virgin birth essential to the faith, our faith, and worthy of defending and continuing for? Let's look at reasons why it's essential and non-negotiable through the lens of the Word of God. Reason number one. 
One reason that belief in the virgin birth is essential is because it reveals the truth, accuracy, and inspiration of the Old Testament biblical prophecies. And also you throw in the integrity of the scripture as far as that goes. In Genesis 3.15, we read that earlier, we see the first place where the gospel message is proclaimed as God is speaking to the serpent in the garden, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is considered the first messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Take note that it says her seed, which is pointing to Jesus Christ. Also note that it says her and not his, as in the seed of a male. The promised Messiah was not to have an earthly father. He was to be divinely conceived, and it says in that scripture, Holy Spirit overshadowed. And this divine conception was in order to bring the destructive blow to the devil. This wording, her seed, implies the virgin birth. And we'll probably get into that a little bit later. Uh, Maybe not in this uh, section, but in the next section when we talk about the incarnation. We're going to do just the virgin birth tonight. The incarnation is going to take a whole other lesson uh, because there's a lot to cover. So also remember uh, Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here Here Isaiah is identifying One of the signs of the coming Messiah, the sign of the virgin giving birth to a son. Some critics are quick to point out that the Hebrew word for virgin is Alma, uh, which means young maiden and can mean other than a virgin. This word Alma is used, it it can mean other than a virgin, but this word Alma is used seven times in the Old Testament to denote a virgin or a young maiden or of marriageable age. But Strong's Concordance, which I use a lot, notes that uh, it, in this particular usage there, for this word, there is no instance where it can be proved that this word designates a young woman who is not a virgin. So every time it's used, the seven times that it's used, it's always pointing to a, a woman of marriageable age but has not uh, consummated with a man. So consider the difference. Think about this. Consider the difference if Isaiah had just written it in that particular verse as the young maiden shall conceive and bear a son rather than the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The young maiden conceiving would not be considered miraculous, would it? I mean, a young maiden is going to conceive one of these days that she's married. So it wouldn't be considered miraculous. But the virgin, the virgin conceiving is very much miraculous. And I'm leaving the the in the narrative because it's in the translation it is a definite article, meaning the virgin was a specific virgin chosen by God for this purpose. The is definite, and if they had put in there an A or an N, that's indefinite. In other words, it could have been anybody. God had a plan. So see, we see another, and then we move on, we see another confirmation of this in Mary's response to Gabriel's announcement to her in Luke, uh, Luke's gospel account, where it says, this this is later on in the scripture, it says in Luke uh, 1, verses 31, and then we'll skip to 34, it says in 31, it says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And then Mary said to the angel in verse 33, a few verses below, she says, how can this be since I do not know a man? And that word know, when we're looking at that particular scripture right there, what that means is it's it's the Greek word uh, genosko, which means having sexual intimacy with a man. In other words, she's saying, how can, I, how can this be? Because I have never been or, or known a man. So it's another confirmation right there of the virg- that she was in a state of virg- virginity. Isaiah recorded specifically that God had revealed to him uh, what God had revealed to him, and it meant exactly what it was intended to mean, that 
that is, that the virgin would conceive and bear a son. The Jews have been looking for this sign ever since. Too bad most of them and their religious pride like the Pharisees and the Sadducees missed it the first time. And, and to, before I move on right from that point right there, even, and they shouldn't have missed it, because even in their interpretation, you know, the Jews went in and, and they had the whole Old Testament interpreted into Greek. It's called, the, that, that version or translation is called the Septuagint. Is that the way it's called? It's pronounced Septuagint. And so that was the old Hebrew in, interpreted into Greek. And even in the Greek, when they interpreted that word into Greek, they, they interpreted it into the Greek word uh, for virgin, which is, uh, um, gosh, I, I know you know it too. Yeah, I know you do. It just my mind went blank. Um, what's uh, the Parthenon? Parth Parthenos or Parthenos, uh, which is the, the the Greek word for uh, virgin. You've heard of the Parthenon in Greece, right? Everybody's heard of that. It's the great big structure that they use, in, and it's called the Parthenon was the, basically the temple of uh, Vestal Virgins. In other words, they had virgins, or supposedly virgins, that were there and available to uh, always virgins there for uh, intercourse with the, uh, the gods if they were to supposedly come down. That was their belief in the Greek. But anyway, they called it the Par Parthenon, and the Greek word for that, it comes from the Greek word Parthenos, which means uh, virgin. Uh, maybe you didn't need to know that, but anyway, that's that's what happened. But that's that's part of it. So, uh, but they 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 even then even then they interpreted it as a virgin, but they missed it. God uses miracles to validate His word through His messengers and prophets. This was probably the most powerful miracle of all time. Our God being born in the flesh to redeem mankind and to reconcile a relationship with Him, and there will and there's there's still more to come on this miracle of all miracles, as we shall see. So another reason to believe in the virgin birth, reason number two, is that it affirms and supports the deity of Jesus and at the same time supports the sinless nature of Jesus in his humanity. Having a biological father would have annulled his deity. He could not have been the son of God and the biological son of Joseph at the same time. The sin nature is passed down by the father. And even though... Eve sinned first, Adam was a responsible head or authority. Adam was created first and should have stopped the disobedience from the start. Thus, sin entered the world through Adam, the father of all mankind. Everyone born since then has had a human father. Everybody's had a father, right? Okay. I don't, I don't think it's ever happened again before. But everybody's got a, everybody is, since Adam has come, come through a, a, a sinful father, a human father. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, therefore, uh, and, uh, with uh, this is a good passage to read. You probably ought to go back and read the whole thing, verse 12 through 19, but we'll take two segments of it. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. And then we skip down to verses 18 and 19 of the of the same chapter 5 therefore as one man's offense judgment came to all through through one man's offense judgment came to all men we can say you could probably say one man and this put a little in parentheses right there adam offense judgment uh, came to all men resulting in condemnation even though even so through one man jesus righteous act 
the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. Whereas by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This is God's provision for us to send his son to be born sinless and to live a sinless and righteous life as a man on earth so that he can be the perfect sacrifice that God has always required. You know, uh, this, we can we can we we say he had to be the perfect sacrifice in Deuteronomy seventeen one. We go all the way back to the Old Testament, uh, where the where they were given the law and the things. It says in seventeen uh, verse one, it says, "You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep, which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God." And John the Baptist declared it in the Gospel of John when he said, "Behold," or the next day. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's already making reference to the sacrifice. He was a Lamb of God. He's making reference to that, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world, or the sin of the world. Okay, reason number three. Belief in the virgin birth demonstrates our acceptance of the supernatural plan and provision of God for us. There was no plan B to resort to when man sinned in the Garden of Eden. God's plan was always was all was already in place from eternity past. Remember, God is omniscient. He knows all things, past, present, and future. Nothing catches him off guard. A few scriptures to affirm this foreknowledge and plan are Revelations 13a. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life. We're talking about the, the unbelievers. Uh, in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's the only place in the Bible where it says the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, it's pointing to Jesus during the book of Revelation. And, and what it's saying is if, you're not, if your name's not written in that book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of earth, you're going to be worshiping the Antichrist, and uh, you're doomed at that point. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heaven and places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. See, we were already chosen, every one of us in here that are believers, we were already chosen in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, when we say that before the foundation of the world, we're saying before the earth was, before creation ever took place, uh, the plan was already in place. He had already chose us in him, in Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So in the plan, Joseph, whom Mary was betrothed to, had no part in the conception except to accept his responsibility as the legal father of the child at birth. Mary acted as a vessel to carry the child, and she accepted this great arm with humility. This is uh, captured in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 38. When Mary, This is when Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So she took on the, the assignment of what she had. The, uh, this, was, this is called the, uh, the Annunciation, and she took, took this on uh, willingly. Let it be according to your word. Salvation is the work of God alone. For us that still believe in, in the miraculous, it is no stretch for us to take it by faith, the virgin birth. But those on the fence, those who are babes in Christ, or those who have a very liberal view of theology like the ones we just read earlier, or have been lured by the false doctrine of cults, it can be problematic. 
If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, equal to God in all characteristics and attributes, then why would it be hard to believe in the virgin birth? Could God have just dropped Jesus full grown, fully grown onto the scene and let him do his ministry on earth just out of nowhere? Well, see, if this would have happened, then Genesis 3.15 could not have been fulfilled. There would not have been her seed. Birth into a human race was essential for the supernatural plan of God to be activated and fulfilled. The term her seed was the first mention of how this would happen as a virgin without a physical father, a physical human father. Jesus, uh, in Genesis 3.15, saying that the same scripture is there, and I'll put in between you and the woman and between her seed, your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, that's a description of Jesus on the, on the cross. He, you're gonna, he's going to bruise your head even though you bruise his heel by harming him in the flesh. That's, that's what we're seeing right there. Could Jesus have been born of a godly man and woman and lived a sinless life from that birth on? The answer, of course, is emphatically no, because otherwise we'd not be able to see the resolution of the problem of transmission of the sin nature. From Adam, all men are born into it, the sin nature. The sin nature comes with the first birth, the natural birth, and ends with the second birth, the supernat the new supernatural birth in Christ Jesus. If Jesus were born of natural parents, a biological father and a biological mother, then the support for his deity would be undermined in addition Jesus' divine nature and human nature are important because of how they affect the doctrine of the atonement. Jesus is human. We'll see that when we get, get to that particular uh, doctrine. Jesus is human so that he could die for people. He is divine so that his sacrifice would be of divine and infinite value and perfect and sufficient to atone for the sins of his people and all people. This is where... It becomes the miraculous, out of the ordinary, extraordinary, and supernatural. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the immaterial and supernatural, and Mary's womb, the material and natural, are both involved in this once in a history, never to happen again, unique occurrence. Only God can make something out of nothing. Only God could perform the miracles of the virgin birth in the incarnation. Amen. The virgin birth is very essential to what we believe. It, it preserves the truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. His physical body he received from Mary, but his eternal holy nature was his, his from, uh, from all eternity past. Peter made this confession about Jesus and his deity in the Gospel of John. This was when uh, all the disciples were gathered around him. He was, Jesus was given his... Uh, Dissertation about you know you're gonna you're gonna eat the you're gonna eat the bread of my body and drink the blood the blood of my body you know and a lot of his disciples left and and so uh, you know Jesus asked him said well are y'all gonna stick around basically he said are y'all gonna stick around are you gonna leave too and G Peter said <laughs> answered him said Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and then he says also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ the Son of the Living God see he was already he was already uh, uh, making that confession that you are the Holy One of Israel, you are the Son of the living God. And then the writer of Hebrews says this about the sinless man who became our high priest in Hebrews 7, 26. He says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. 
these are all things we're talking about here. What things we're talking about are the supernatural things. That's that, you know that's where we have that belief in the supernatural. And a quote from R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey was the was the minister or evangelist that took uh, D.L. Moody's place after at at the Moody Bible College or Moody uh, Seminary. But anyway, he this is what he said: the birth of Jesus was not as in ordinary births the creation of a new personality. It was a divine person already existing, entering on this new mode of existence. Miracle alone could affect such a wonder. See, the virgin birth of Jesus is an example of God's gracious work on our behalf. God took the initiative. Mary was not looking to become pregnant. It was all God's idea. Joseph had no role in the conception. His body was not involved. So the power had to come from God. In a similar way, our salvation is based solely on God's initiative and God's power. We did not seek God, but he sought us. We can do nothing to earn our salvation, but we can rely on God's power and his perfect provision if we will but receive it. Isn't that good? Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.